This is part of an email that was sent by Brian, Brian Bridgman. Some of you guys know Brian and Amy Bridgman are a young couple in our church. And, and uh, Amy was diagnosed with cancer a little bit ago. And so she's been going through treatment. And, um, and I'll just read you the email. Um, Thanks for checking in. This is Pastor Mike who checked in. Thanks for checking in. We're remaining hopeful. Amy is slowly but surely getting stronger. Overall, I think that we are overwhelmed by the love and support that our church family, underline that, family has offered us. People have prayed for us, bought us food, were just flat out giving us generous and flabbergasting amount of money. This love and concern is more than I could have anticipated or asked for. In short, the church has been a major answer to prayer. That's not to say it's been all puppies and rainbows. Some days are harder than others, and yet... We still are hoping and waiting with the expectation that God will continue to do a miraculous work of healing. Brian, will you uh, just kind of raise your hands, get church. Uh, For those of you that don't know who Brian is, it's Brian right back back there uh, to my stage left to your right. For anybody that doesn't know, uh, Brian and Amy have welcomed uh, the church family that's you. To care for them and minister to them in ways. And so um, they welcome your prayer support. They've welcomed financial support. In any way that you could be a support to them. Um, We've been talking about community. Better together. And we've been talking about what it means to be a biblical community. The last two Sundays we talked about just kind of this overall 30,000 for perspective as we've talked about community, that it's really, community is not about a Christian thing or a Hindu thing or a Buddhist thing or a Muslim thing. Or it's, just, it's a humanity thing. We've looked at Genesis and saw that this desire and need for community is a human being thing that we all share in common. This longing to connect, to be in relationship. Why? We've been created an image of an us God, not a me God. Well, for the next couple of weeks, we're actually transitioning more specifically, not just talking about community in general, but really talking about the church, a biblical community and what that means. Now, the challenge for me is this. Every time we talk, the challenge for me is this. The challenge for me is that I'm speaking to an audience, 99% of you, me, who's been influenced by a Western American. It's not just an American, but it's especially an American thing, a mindset that's that's looking at our lives and saying this, who I am today and what I am today is a result of personal, individual decisions and choices I've made. We sit here today, I don't know you, but I know this about you, we think that we, who we are is a result of personal decision choices we make. And, and, and you'll notice this as you get older. And I'm not that much older than most of you, but as you get older, what you'll realize is we are profoundly more impacted and shaped by people and not individual choices. We are profoundly shaped by who we hang out with, who's around us. 
We are profoundly more shaped by family and relationships than who we are individually. Who you are today is not a product of individual decisions and choices you've made. Who you are is a result of community. And we say this in our church a lot. So that means if community is what has messed you up, community is what will heal you. If relationships and influences is what has created who you are, you can't expect it by your Self and reading and seminar and therapy, those are all good things, but by yourself, that you would be able to change and become who God wants you to be. Are you hearing me? So that means this. Let me put it this way. If your birth family is what's messed you up, the Bible says in a powerful way that it's your spiritual family that could heal you. If your birth family, other relationships... It's what's messed you up. It's your spiritual. Now, now, let me just say this before, because we're going to talk about family today, and for some of us, it brings up really good reminders. And actually, we sit here and go, that's amazing. I love my family, mom and dad. I love my relatives. I love even my crazy Uncle Bob that I get to see like twice a year. I love everybody. And then there's some of us for whom today is painful, because when we think of family, it's really hard, especially dads. I just want to say this. The temptation is enormous. To have our earthly father and our view of him define who God is. And I just want to gently and firmly say to you today, don't let your earthly father and what you've experienced define God the father. Go to the Bible to see who God the father is. Let scripture define who God the father is and not give in to the temptation to go, this is what my earthly dad was like, so this is... So we're going to talk about birth into community and the spiritual family. And I've talked about this here and there in the 13 years of our church history. But man, today, I'm just going to warn you, it's going to get uncomfortable. Is that okay? Church, is that okay? And for those of you that are new, it gets uncomfortable a lot. But we're okay with that, okay? Because it's family, all right? So um, let me go ahead and look at our text for today. And there's a lot here. And I have... I doubt that I can get through all of it, so I'm going to get through as much as I can, and then we'll pick it up next week. Romans 12, verse 9 is where we pick ourselves up. Romans 12, verse 9, love must be sincere, hate what is evil, and cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Verse 17, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Verse 20, on the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, then you feed him. If he is thirsty, then you give him something to drink. In doing this, you will reap burning coals on his head. Verse 21, so do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Did you ever notice that so much of what the Bible says just seems really vague? 
The reason why that is the case is because you and I read the Bible through individual lenses. Did you know that the New Testament, 70% of it is not written to individuals, but it's written to groups? As I like to point out, you know, if we're in the South, we'd go, y'all, and talk about everybody. But we, being individual, the New Testament, the Bible, is not written to individuals. So we get these ethical exhortations, and we go, that's kind of vague. Don't be greedy. It's kind of vague. How, how do you know if you're not being greedy? Well, the problem is it's not written to individuals. It's written to a group of people. It's in the plural. It's saying, y'all, don't be greedy. Why? Because you and I are so materialistic that we have no clue when we're being greedy or not. True? So when it says y'all, it's saying you all keep each other accountable that you are not being greedy. See, it makes much more sense, doesn't it? And then there's rejoice in the Lord always. Do you ever think about that? I will say it again, rejoice. To which you go, I can't rejoice all the time. There oh, oh, oh. So it's not just written to Steve. It's not just written to Annette. No, it's not written to individuals. Because it's really hard sometimes to rejoice in all times. Amen? But it says, no, you are. What does it mean? Sometimes it's really hard to find things to rejoice. That's why you need others to go, hey, it's difficult to rejoice. But can you remind, can I remind you of things and reasons why we can rejoice today? The Bible's written so much of it to groups of people. In Romans chapter 12, we find a number of ethical, ethical exhortations, and it's actually about the character of Christian community, not just you individuals. We're saying, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Brotherly love. What does that mean? Brotherly love. It's so vague, so sentimental. Just a little side. When I think of brotherly love, I think of guys in flannel t-shirts in a log cabin somewhere over a pit of fire. I think of a Bud Light commercial. I don't know why, but a long time it was Bud Light commercial. A bunch of guys who went fishing and they're cooking fish over. And the, one of the guys looks around and goes, it doesn't get any better than this, fellas. <laughs> brotherly love. It's so vague. What does it mean? Actually, the word is, as some of you know, Philadelphia. I agree. Love of brothers. Now, that's not very helpful, but what is helpful is the words that precede it. It says, be devoted to one another. And the devoted to one another is philostorge in Greek, which literally means affection for or bondedness with your brothers. You know what it's saying? Check this out, you guys. It's saying, if you've experienced the gospel, then you have bondedness with. And deep affection for your brothers and your sisters. Can I say that again? If you've experienced the gospel, you have deep affection for and bondedness with your brothers, your sisters, your spiritual family. Is that true of you? Of course not. Of course not. Some of us, with some people, now, you have no idea how powerful this metaphor is and how challenging. Does anybody find this metaphor challenging and not just powerful? Because here's the thing. This metaphor of family, brothers and sisters, is so common throughout the New Testament that if I were to show you all the verses, I'll just show you one. We'll be here for 30 minutes. Galatians 6, 10. Therefore, as we have opportunity, but let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Here's what you need to know. What you need to know is that this concept of brotherhood, family, was scandalous, was offensive, and radical to the Greeks and Romans at the time. Let me show you a quote by a guy named Lucian of Samotis. He was a satirist in 
in the first century. And look what he says. And by the way, his quote is dripped with sarcasm. It's dripping with sarcasm. He's not saying this with affection. It's dripping. Their founder, that's Jesus, persuaded them that they should be like brothers to one another. So you know what they do? They despise their own privacy and, and, and view all their possessions as common property. The Greeks and Romans found this concept, we're brothers, we're sisters, we're family, offensive. They found this concept of Christians going, I don't guard my privacy, offensive. They found this concept that these total non-related strangers would actually share their possessions, offensive and radical. Do you? Do I? What does this teach us about the body of Christ's family? Three things, and then we're going to take communion. One, let's all say this together. Ready? Your family is given to you, not chosen. Say it again. Ready? Your family is given to you. Now, I need you to do this for me, okay? I need you to do this for me. We're going to do a lot of interactive. I need you to look at your neighbor and go, I didn't choose you. God just gave you to me, Okay? I'm just kidding. Don't do that. I'm just kidding. There are, there are non-Christians and visitors who are like, what the heck is this? Okay. Now, guys, let me put this in the negative. Let me put this in the negative. And then, Sierra, it's not that funny, okay? Let me put this in the negative. Listen, let me put this in the negative, and then I'll put it in the positive. Okay, negatively, negatively. Come on, negatively. When you become a Christian, when you, you get God and God's kids at the same time. Say it again, Carlton. When you, get, when you become a Christian, you get God, God's kids at the same time in one single movement. There's not a single person here who is a genuine follower of Jesus who could say, I want God, but I don't want to do anything with his kids. No such thing exists. You didn't choose your family. You choose your friends. That's why you like them. I'm just going to be plain. You choose our friends because you have common interests. You have common likes. We choose our friends. That's why we like them. We don't like our family because we don't get to choose them. I want to tell you a little secret. Lean in. Come on in closer. Lean in. Lean in, okay? If you, if you stay on like the Sunday and you kind of calm on Sundays and just observe, you, you're going to think our church is amazing. You're going to think our church is wonderful. Okay? But here's what's going to happen when you start getting deeper and you start joining small groups. You start getting to know people. Come on, real closer. I want to tell you a little secret. Because here's who our church is really made of, okay? They're weird. They're a little complicated. Some of them hold radically different views politically than you do. Did you know that? Some of them have lots of issues. They're very needy. Some of them are going to get on your nerves, on your very last nerves. Do you know why? Welcome to family. Can I get an amen? amen? Family is complicated. Family is hard. Family gets on your very last nerves. Family... Family hold radically different views on some things. But here's the thing about family. We don't give up on each other. Here's the thing about family. 
We don't just cut people off and say, I'm done with you. Here's the thing about family. We don't say, because you hold those views, I don't want to have anything to do with you. In family, we fight. In family, we duke it out. But in a healthy family, we sit down and we work through things. Because here's the thing about family in the body of Christ. Jesus didn't come along and say, therefore tolerate each other as I have tolerated you. He comes and says what? Therefore what? Love one another as I have loved you. My question to you is, are you just tolerating each other or loving each other? So here's the thing about the body of Christ. The thing about Christianity, the thing about Christianity is that you and I are sons and daughters of God because we have been adopted by the Father via unconditional love. Here's what that means. I'm gonna, that means that we didn't have to audition for God for him to choose and select us because that's how our relationships out there work 100% of the time. This may be strong, but we function in a culture where we have to audition to other people in order to be chosen by them. We have to. It's not blatant. We have to audition. I'm smart enough. I'm cool enough. I'm hip enough. I'm this enough. I'm th- we have to audition to other people suddenly. And we, too, have this filter that makes people audition before we accept them and are warm to them. I just want to say this morning, I am thankful that I didn't have to audition to my heavenly father before he accepted and chose me. I am thankful that I didn't have to audition before God because you know what? I am messy. I am weak. I am hard to get along with. I have issues and I am difficult. Is anybody else glad that God the Father doesn't go, I'm going to make you audition. Let me see if you're cool enough, keep enough. He says, I accept you and embrace you unconditionally. Christian community should be the one place in the world where we don't make people prove themselves before we accept them and are warm to them. Let me say that again. This right here should be the one place in our culture and society because every other sphere, you have to perform. You have to audition. You have to say, let me prove myself and my worth. This ought to be the one place where somebody could come as they are spiritually, politically, sexual orientation, no matter what, and say, can I belong here? Can you, be ex- can you accept me? Good Lord, you guys. I know I'm pressing buttons. I'm pressing buttons. And I'm asking you to ask yourself, what is your attitude and approach relationally? Do you even subconsciously make people audition and prove themselves before? Come on. Where would we be if our Heavenly Father said, I want to make you prove yourself before I, where would we be? Where would you be? Where would I be? And what does it mean for us? What does it mean for us as a family to go, you're my brother, you're my sister. We are connected to God the Father and each other in Christ. Amen, church. Oh, man. That's putting it negatively. Let me put it positively, okay? Positively is, and I love this, The Four Loves by C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite books 
And in the book, he talks about four different kinds of love. Storge love, which is this familial love, family love. Philos, love of friendship and brothers. And there's eros, which is love of, where we get the word erotic, it's romantic love. By the way, by the way, do you know that people of olden times valued and saw the glory of friendship and value that and said, that, that's amazing. And we're going to look at that in a couple of weeks. And romantic love, the thing that our culture is obsessed with, wasn't that big of a deal. Here's our culture. You never go to a magazine rack and people magazine. So-and-so is best friends with so-and-so. Whoa. No, what do we do? So-and-so is dating so-and-so. So-and-so is... Why? Because our culture is obsessed with romantic love. And the larger scheme of things, romantic love, eros, erotic love, and um, we're going to look at that in a couple of weeks. <sighs> I, I will look at it in a couple of weeks. And then the, and the fourth kind of love, of course, is agape love. And C.S. Lewis says this, and I love it. He says there's a, there's a special glory to family love. There's a special gloriousness about storge love, family love. And here's what he says. This is cool. Just listen. His historical love, family love, is not discriminating. Friends and lovers will say they're made for each other. But the special glory of Storge is it unites those who most emphatically, even comically, are not made for each other. Storge exists between people who, if they had not found themselves in the same household or the same community, they would have nothing to do with each other. And then it gets really, really good. This is what he says. He says, but growing fond of, oh, so-and-so, simply because he or she happened to be there, because you're thrown together in the same family or the same platoon or the same ship, there's a wonder about that. Are you tracking what he's saying? Here's what he says. For when you begin to say, you know what? Though she's not my sort of person, yet she's really very good in her own way, you've crossed the frontier. Because it means you're getting beyond your own idiosyncrasies. You're beginning to learn to appreciate the goodness or intelligence in themselves and not merely goodness or intelligence that's flavored and served to suit your taste, your views, and your palate. And then he says, that's why dogs and cats should always be brought up together because it broadens their minds. So, you see what he's saying? And by the way, I've, I've found this to be the case. When I, when I see people, for example, I've, I've known people who are in the military in our church. And their closest of friends were people that were in the military together. Just kind of, boom, thrown together. I've seen people. And what this is saying is this. Storgated love is the kind of love that happens between people who, if they had the choice, would not have chosen each other. But as a result of choosing each other, here's what happens. Their bond and their affections go to a level where because of them, you see things that you may never have seen otherwise. This is why Paul says in Ephesians 1, this is so powerful. He says, this is the test that you are truly a Christian and you've experienced the gospel. He says, you could point to people in your life and go, we have nothing in common world-wise, but because of Jesus 
there's bondedness and there's affection. I say to you all the time, can you point to a group of people in your life today who you could say, the only reason why we're friends is because of Jesus. Otherwise, but because of them, you're able to see things that you'd have never seen otherwise. Church, do you feel a deep connection with those that are around you? Even though you may have nothing else in common, worldwide, but because of Jesus. Are you just putting up with people here? Are you just tolerating them? Are they just acquaintances? Are they just superficial? Or is there deep affection? Secondly, family is about transparency. Remember I told you it was going to get uncomfortable? Here it is. Here it is. Ready? Your, 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 your siblings, they, they wiped your nose and they wiped your bottom. Or, or you wiped your siblings' nose and you wiped your siblings' bottoms or you saw them being wiped. Why, why do I say that? Because you've seen it all. Come on. Facades don't work in family. You can't put on airs anymore. They, they see you without makeup. They know what you look like without makeup. Okay, I can go on and on and on. In family, in family, in family, you can't, you can't put, because why? Because why? You, you see, they know it. You see. Hey, here's the thing. How much privacy there is there in family? How much privacy is there? Well, there's one subset of human beings and family who guard their privacy. They're strange creatures called teenagers, okay? <laughs> I know we have some teenagers among us, so I, wanna, I don't want to offend you. Um, teenagers. I'm not a child anymore. Good Lord, I look forward to that day. I'm not a child anymore. You can't go into my room. By the way, if you have to say to your parents, I'm not a child anymore, you're still a child. Um, here's the thing, though. Even with teenagers and parents, parents, if you're a good parent, a healthy parent, even a healthy, the, the, the law, the world will throw their book at you if you don't know where your children are, if you don't know what they're doing. In a healthy family, listen, in a healthy family, there's healthy point of contact in every single way. In a healthy family, it's going to get uncomfortable. In a healthy family, in a healthy family, you know what people are doing with their money. In a healthy family, you know what people are doing with their bodies and their sexuality. In a healthy family. In a healthy family, we don't function like a club. What's a club? Club is something that has one point of contact and no other point of contact. If you're part of a fantasy football league club, you get together to talk about football and football only. If you're in fantasy football draft, and you're talking about the Bears, and all of a sudden the guy turns to you and goes, by the way, you like Cutler? I don't like Cutler. Okay, that's good. And then he goes, by the way, what are you dating her for, man? She's not good for you. What do you say? You go, that's none of your business. We're here to talk about football. Sometimes I look at our church and I go, I think we're more of a club than a family. Because we come together and we have one point of contact, whatever that is, and we have yet to be fully transparent and vulnerable in saying, here's what I'm doing with my money. Here's what I'm doing with my body. Here's who I'm dating. Here's where I'm at spiritually. In a healthy family, 
We don't have point of contact Sundays. Hey, good to see you for an hour and a half, two hours if he goes long. And we'll see you in a healthy family, healthy family. There's transparency where all parts of your life interact with all parts of their lives. Is this happening here? The Bible is saying, are you connected spiritually? And is there such transparency that you have let people know about your besetting sins? All of us have besetting sins. And not only that, but you've given them permission to go, when you see me struggling with it, I need you to lovingly confront me and call me out. And a loving, healthy family, we have said to people, I really struggle with my sexuality and my body and what I do with it. Can you, family, keep me accountable? Let me know that you know that you know where my whereabouts, who I'm dating, where I'm at. And a healthy family, and by the way, this happens in pockets in our church. Because we are so materialistic in our culture, in a healthy family, there's a group of people who actually get together and said, every month I'm going to give you my credit card statement and my checking account. I need you to see where I'm spending my money. Let me ask you something. Are you that spiritually transparent and vulnerable with the group of people in the church? Or are you keeping your sins and your struggles private and secret? We looked at this verse last week, and some of you got it. Many of us didn't. The radical implications. Hebrews chapter 13. This is, this is one of those verses that I wish wasn't in the Bible, but it is. Chapter 3, 13. But encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. You know what this is saying? This is saying your heart and my heart is like a bucket of water in cold, frigid winter. And it's getting harder and harder naturally every day. When things are going well, our hearts get hard. We get proud. We get self-independent. Then when things are going bad, we begin to doubt. We struggle with our faith. And what it's saying is this. You've got to have people in your life that are constantly breaking ice on top of that. Or else your heart and my heart will get hardened by sense of deceitfulness. And there's two premises here in this verse. And yes, I'm speaking to those of us who struggle with our privacy Guard our privacy, don't want to commit to anything, and don't want to be vulnerable. First, it says you need to have people in your life who regularly, regularly are checking up on you. And they need to have access to you where they could drop by any time. These are not your FaceTime friends. These are not your Skype friends. These are not your texting friends. These are not, why? Why? Because those friends, you get to control what they see about you. Now, these are friends that can go, Hello? Hey, Peter, where are you? Where are you? I'm at your door, you idiot. I'm knocking on your door. What do you do? Drop in any time. And they see you just being you. And secondly, they need to have permission from you. They need to have permission from you. And we're going to talk more about this in the next couple of weeks. To lovingly and yet firmly challenge you and confront you when you're not living in accordance with your call as Jesus desires. Where do we get this idea, by the way, that unconditionally loving somebody is saying, I don't care. That's not love. Love speaks truth. 
Do you have people like that in your life? I'm serious. And I said this last week. If I didn't have people like that in my life from this church, I couldn't pass to this church. How do I get up here and tell you guys to make your life that vulnerable, accountable to other people? And I'm not myself living it. I need people to ask me questions like, did you look at anything this week you didn't, that didn't honor God? Did you do anything this week that might not have been pleasing to God that you didn't tell anybody about? Peter, did, 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 did you do anything and say this week that you needed to ask for forgiveness, but you, do you have people like that in your life? Real quick, do you, why is this important? Because I don't want to just tell you what to do. Why is this important? Because you and I are under so much delusion and we are so insecure that we are unwilling to face up to our faults and our weaknesses. We can't hear ourselves. So you need someone else to go, hey, CC, you're struggling with that, man. And you gave me permission to call you out, right? Brother, I love you. You can't be doing that. Do you have people in your life who lovingly are able to point things out? Guys, you know what scares me? What scares me is that for some of us, we actually think that we're learning, we're growing, we're changing by coming to worship, singing songs, and listening to sermons. We're going, wow, that was really inspirational. I learned something. I'm going to go, the only, how many of us believe the right things, but it doesn't result in changed behavior? Anybody? (laughs) Four people. A lot of us, we believe the right things, but you and I know believing the right things doesn't automatically result in changed behavior. Do you know what results in changed behavior? It's when you believe the right things, but you have a group of people and saying, is this working out? How do I apply this? Keep me accountable. How do I live this? Am I doing that? Am I doing this? And together, you pound the truth into each other's hearts. And when we fail, you have people that pick you up and saying, let's get up and do it again. That's how you change. We don't grow and change. by li- Cognition doesn't change us. Community does. You can't just be coming here and be like, I'm learning, listening to podcast sermons. You need a community of people that are saying, Let's do this together. Am I living it? Are you living it? How does this apply to you? That doesn't apply like that. This is how it applies to me. And we work on it and work on it and pound it into our hearts. And we pound it into our hearts. And it's in the context of that that right beliefs will begin to affect life change. Third, family is about vulnerability. Look at this long passage, verse 10. It says, honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. We're going to talk about that for two weeks next week. Practice hospitality. And verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Right in the middle of all this talk about community, you have some very interesting couple of ethical exhortations, right? Verses 11 and 12. Never be lacking in zeal. Keep your fervor. Joyful, no patient affliction. And if you remove that from the context, you go, oh, that just applies to me. It's not just applied to you. What it's saying is right in the middle of brotherly love and right in the middle of sharing God's people, it's not talking about spiritual fervor in general. What it's saying is this, 
if you take seriously what the Bible says about your relationship with your brothers and sisters, you're going to find yourself often drained. You're going to find yourself often exhausted. Do you know why? Because if you're doing this, you have so emotionally and other ways identified with them that what's happening to them begins to affect you. How many of you guys know what that's about? In this kind of community, it's saying you have so emotionally invested in their lives that what's happening to them, it affects you. And you're going to find yourself walking around going, whoo, I'm drained. Whoo, I'm exhausted. That community thing is hard. Why? It's normal. It's natural. If I identify yourself with them. But can I just point out something? I love the order. It says, rejoice with those who rejoice before weep with those who mourn or mourn with those. Do you know why? I'm just going to make a confession here. Me, I find it easier to weep with those who weep or mourn with those who mourn than rejoicing with those who rejoice. Does anybody track it? I find it harder. That's the test of true community. Do you know why? For some reason, I find it, it's not hard for me to mourn and weep with those who mourn. But when somebody does better than me, does anybody know what I'm talking? Am I the only one? Am I the only freak? I find it harder to, so when somebody else gets a job that you think they're better qualified for, I find it hard to rejoice with them. Can I get an Amen. When somebody gets a promotion, they're like, wait a minute, what, what, what? And they're sharing a community group. They're like, I got a promotion. You're like, yay. And inside you're going, what? When somebody starts dating, and you sit there and you go, I'm happy for you, kind of. I could go on and on. Does anybody else here find it more difficult to rejoice with those who rejoice? That's the test of true community. Do you celebrate? Is there genuine joy in your heart when you see fake Facebook status updates of your fake Facebook friends in their fake book? I read somewhere, I read somewhere. Do you know that Facebook has caused an onset of depression in people? Do you know why? Because people actually compare their average ordinary lives to people's highlight reels on fake book. Test of true community. Everybody look up here. I'm serious. Do you genuinely rejoice with those who rejoice? If not, if not, don't just go in your outfit. If not, I want you to sit with that this week and go, God, what is going on here that I'm filled with envy, jealousy, that I can't genuinely rejoice for my brother and for my sister who's doing well? What is that? I'm not going to tell you what that is. We'll talk about that in a couple weeks. But I need you to sit and ask the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, what is that? Because could that be keeping you from genuine communion? But not just rejoice, but it says weep with those who weep. And this is powerful for me. 
Because this has been basically my life for the last two months. It's saying it's going to be emotionally costly to be a brother or sister. Because you can't be detached. You have to be involved. You have to care. And you can't give up on them. And the only way to do that, and the only way to do that is to make sure that you are keeping your heart vulnerable and open. See, every time I talk about this, immediately somebody goes, oh, but I don't want to get hurt anymore. I don't want to get hurt. I, I've done that. I put myself out there, and I, gotta, I don't want to get hurt anymore. Wow. And here's what I always say. I always say, always say, fall back, C.S. Lewis. You only have one of two choices. You could either say, I'm going to open my heart to love, genuinely love and care, and risk getting hurt, or I could take my heart and say, I don't ever want to get hurt. So I'm going to take my heart, and I'm going to put it in the casket of selfishness, where it's going to be about my issues, my hobbies, my interests. And C.S. Lewis says, in that casket of selfishness, your heart will never get broken. It'll never get broken. But you know what will happen? Your heart will become unbreakable, irredeemable, incapable of caring and loving. And this is the only place where you could ever safeguard your heart from ever getting hurt again is hell. Are you willing to open your heart, not just emotionally, but then it gets this, materially. Look at verse 13. It says, share with those who uh, are in need. And by the way, the words there in Greek actually mean give your money, share your possessions. They have a claim on them. If you see a brother or sister in need, they have a claim on your money, possessions of time. Galatians 6, 2, carry each other's burdens. And in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. I was going to do this as an example today, like physical example. If you see me carrying a 100-pound bag on my back, how do, you, how do you help carry that burden, a 100-pound bag? Here's how you do it. You can't sit there and go, I pray for you. You can sit there and go, man, I feel so bad for you. Let me know if you need some money. What do you do? What do you do? Here's what you do. You come up behind me. You literally have to get in my shoes. You have to come up behind me and see that weight. You literally have to be so close, so near, that some of the weight of that 100-pound bag begins to what? Fall on who? Fall on you. Do you know what this means? If you see someone carrying an emotional burden, you can't carry that burden Unless you're willing to let some of that burden slide into you. Are you hearing me? You can't carry that burden just by saying, I pray for you. The way you carry that burden is this. They call you up at 10 o'clock and you go, I've been there four nights in a row and I don't want to go back. Why? Because it's draining. And what it's saying is some of that drainage is coming onto you. And as a result... They feel affirmed. As a result, they feel like they're not going in it alone. As a result, they feel supported by you. It's literally substitute. You're letting some of their weight be substituted unto you. But again, it doesn't just end with the emotionally. It gets to materialistic. You know, listen, listen. I've had people in this church say, Pastor Peter, I want to help, but you know what? I just can't afford to right now. I'm in need. And I go, I totally understand. But then I say this. If you never help somebody in their need without somehow that impacting you, 
then how in the world are you ever carrying any of their burden? If our attitude is, I can only help when I have plenty of room. I can only help when I got access money. I can only help when I have plenty. How in the world is that carrying some of their burden? Isn't the very definition carrying some of their burden that some of the burden falls on you? You know what that means? This is radical. To live this out, that means we help people in need in such a way that some of the things we want to do, we can't get to do. Some of the things we call luxuries, those things disappear. Genuinely caring someone's, this is the reason why I read that email. Because I know for a fact that some of the people, this is amazing, right? Some of the people that have helped Brian and Amy Bridgman are not people that you and I would consider wealthy. They're not people that do well financially. And you know what I found amazing? What I found amazing is that some of the most generous people in our church are some of the people with the least amount of money. And some of the people who have the most amount to give, I'm not saying this is everybody. Some of you, lots of money, radically generous. But something about having a lot that some people go, yeah, but it's those for whom they get this. This is going to burden me. You understand, Pastor? This is going to burden me. But the only way I can carry their burden is if it burdens me. So I'm going to give. Do you know the word koinonia means in the New Testament? Defined throughout the book of Acts, koinonia, fellowship. <laughs> Coffee and donuts. Coffee and donuts in the basement. And now fellowship literally means sharing of possessions. You know what that means? The early church practiced koinonia. They share their houses. They share their possessions. They let their entire lives be open to people. And they gave and gave and gave. We are the opposite. We protect our privacy. We guard our privacy. We protect our possessions. I earned it. I work for it. How are we being countercultural in this culture? And we're unwilling to let some of the burden fall on us. How are you doing? How am I doing? By the way, thank you for those of you that asked. Last two months. It's like one tragedy after another. And honestly, <laughs> I couldn't even enjoy my vacation. Why? Because I found this truth out firsthand. I literally left for my family vacation three days after performing Billy's funeral. And at the vacation, as much as I love being with my family, I love them to death, the entire time, the entire time, the entire time, the thought that went through my mind was this. I wonder how they're doing. I wonder if she's okay. I wonder if he's okay. Do you have people in this church who are looking and going, Peter, carrying it right now. Carrying it right now. Carrying it right now. Because I'm close enough. They're close enough to me. I'm carrying it. How do you do this? How do we do this? How do you do this? How do we do this? Do you want to hear your pastor go, now try really hard, okay? Do you want to hear your pastor go, now here are the four steps. No, you know I don't do that. Do you know why I don't do that? Because that doesn't work. You need the gospel. You need the gospel. What do I mean? Cece, come on up. We're going to be taking communion soon. You need the gospel. Can I tell you something? Can I tell you a little family ritual I have at home? <laughs> family ritual I have at home. Every night, I go into my kid's room, give them kisses. Good night, Parker. 
And I Sophie, and I Noah, and my daughter. My daughter is the only one that does this. She goes, Daddy, can you, can you tuck me in? <laughs> and she goes, like a burrito. <laughs> I have no idea what that means. Can you tuck me in like a burrito? Cover me like a burrito. Ask my wife. I'm not even exaggerating. Like a burrito. I go, okay, chicken burrito, beef burrito. What kind of burrito? I don't know. I don't do that. So I just take the blanket and I like literally just wrap her up. You know, she looks like a mummy. Like she's wrapped up the blanket, like right up there. She's laying there. Are you comfortable? I'm very comfortable. Thank you. <laughs> and I kid you not, I do that and I walk out. Maybe it's because I'm just a pastor. That is what I do for a living. I think about the spiritual ramifications of how every single one of us, and I always say this, Christian or not, you and I have this deep longing inside of us to go, will somebody cover me? Will somebody tuck me in? Why? Because we know what we've done. Think about some of the mistakes you've made. Think about your besetting sins. Think about some of the things you've done that nobody else knows about. Think about some of the things that you did that you could never take back. It's done and it's out there. Think about all those things. And here's the crazy thing. You ready? Our culture actually tries to tell you, tell yourself you're okay. Tell yourself you're okay. And again, I'm, you could do therapy. I'm all about those things. But our culture goes, tell your, the problem is you can't tell yourself you're okay. I've tried. I, I've, all the mistakes, I've tried to tell myself, you're okay. You'll forgive it. You're okay. You're for, I try telling myself that it doesn't work. Does it work for you? Because innately, you need to have somebody else tell you that you're okay. Somebody else has to come and tell you, you're all right. I know everything you've done. I know all the mistakes you've made. Those things you must take about. I know about, I know you to the bottom. But I think you're okay. And I love you and I admire you. You know what that is? Why do you weep when someone does that? That's somebody tucking you in. That's somebody covering you. And I said this last week. We have a longing for that. And we point to the cross and say, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ on his cross was the loudest and clearest declaration to the world, to you and me. How much more clearly can the Savior of the world on the cross declare to you and me, I know everything there is to know about you. I know everything you've done. I know all the mistakes you made. I know everything there is to know. But you know what? I still love you. I still forgive you. The cross is the loudest declaration in the world for all of history to say, you're okay. Through my blood, you're okay. That's why this amazing verse, amazing verse in Hebrew says this. So now Jesus and the one he makes holy, that's you and me, have the same father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them his brothers and sisters, the gospel of Jesus. Is that good news to anybody? Do you believe that? Here's the thing. Of course you don't. I tricked you today because I normally end with that and go, but because if you and I believe that all the days of our lives, we wouldn't struggle with the things we struggle with, insecurity. 
We know it here, but there are times when we struggle with it, don't we? Don't we? We struggle going, ah, I am his son. I am his daughter. We have the same father. He sees me to the depths and he covers me. If we knew that and we believed it all the days of our lives, we would be so much more secure, so much more bold, so much more. But we don't. That is why the Bible comes along and says what? You need each other to speak it into one another. That's why the Bible says, Sue, I need you to look at me. And when I have a hard time loving myself, to say what? I love you anyway. Is there anything more powerful? That's why when you and I have blown it and we go, is there any hope for me? And we know that God forgives us. Somebody else comes along and says, I know you've blown it, but I'm not giving up on you. That's why the Bible says you and I need each other. When we can't forgive ourselves, to have somebody else come and say, he's forgiven you, and I forgive you. We couldn't spend enough time, church family. There's not enough time that we could spend weekly getting together and saying to each other, you are his son, you are his daughter, we have the same father. Annette, he loves you, he forgives you, you are cherished in his eyes. We couldn't do that enough. We couldn't do that enough. And yet, there are some of us who never hear it, or hear it rarely, and there's some of us who rarely speak it. To make it real. To make it tangible. Heavenly Father, I call you my father. I call you my father. I call you my father because of your son, Jesus. And I call you my brother. I call you my sister because of Jesus. And church family, is, is, is this community, is, is our community the kind of community that's connected, that's intimate, that's bonded, that's together in such a way that we call and speak and proclaim and show and live out the beauty and the wonder of the gospel. Like when you come down the aisle in a minute and you take this bread and you dip it in the cup, do you recognize and realize the power and the might and the beauty of what you are proclaiming by saying, I am related to you, I am related to you. I'm related to you.
I am connected to you. I am connected to you. I am connected to you. Can you look at a group of people in this church family today? And if not, if you can't do that, what do you need to do? What concrete, tangible steps do you need to take, my dear brother and sister, in these next few days, upcoming weeks, to live into this reality? Family's vulnerable. Family's transparent. Family's given to us. The night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Oh, this is my body broken for y'all, you all. I do this for the sake of the church. The body of Christ and not just you individually. Therefore, when you take it, remember, remember that the cost was paid, not just for you, but for the body. And when you dip it in the cup, remember that His blood washes us and cleanses us. And was paid so that you and I could call him Father, my heavenly Father. And then we could enter and come in to his presence with boldness and confidence. 